Well, a few of us have some mutual friends, um, and their names are Michelle and David, and they live in Rockford, uh, but several years ago, they started the home buying process. They're out house hunting, they're trying to find what house are we gonna buy for us to live in, and, and they found this one particular house, and both of them liked it, and Michelle especially liked it, and so she was like, oh, this is a beautiful house, and we think, okay, this is gonna be the house for us. But then, at some point, they discovered that the foundation wasn't that great. There was something wrong with the foundation. And David had worked in architectural firms for several years, and so he knew you do not mess around with a bad foundation. And he told Michelle, you know, I don't mess around with foundation issues. That's something I can't fix. And she was kind of ex upset because she really liked the house, and she was like, man, you're kind of destroying you know, my dreams or my vision for living in this beautiful house, and can't you just you know, fix this and deal with it? But David knew that foundation problems mean that the house isn't structurally sound. Um, if the foundation isn't structurally sound, the whole rest of the house um, is also not structurally sound. And so he knew that it would probably lead to other problems down the road, and he didn't want to pay that price. And so David, David knew that even if this was our, their dream house, that it wasn't worth buying it if it was built on a poor foundation. If the foundation isn't solid, neither is the rest of the house. And, Today as we're celebrating Easter, we're finishing off our series called For You, because Jesus says um, the final night of his life when he's having uh, a meal with the disciples, he says that his death was going to be for them. It's going to be for you. It's going to be for me. It's going to be for all of us. And he said his death was going to rescue people from the penalty our sin deserves, the penalty for rebelling against God. He said, I'm gonna my death's going to rescue people from that penalty. And he said it's going to create a new, restored relationship with God. And he called this message... Go gospel, which means good news. But just like buying a house, even if we think it's a beautiful story, a beautiful message, we shouldn't buy it unless it rests on a solid foundation. I mean, we might want it to be true, but this good news is just wishful thinking if it isn't built on a solid, rock-solid foundation. And the big question Luke chapter 24 answers is this. Why should we believe the gospel? Why should we believe the gospel? That's the question this chapter answers. And in Luke chapter 24, we're going to see the disciples go on this journey from unbelief to belief. And it's, they go on this journey through three different conversations, and each conversation repeats the same truth. And so we're going to walk through all of them and then return to that big question. Why should we believe the gospel? So let's first cover Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. And before we do, we need to get in the mindset of these early these disciples that were following Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so just imagine, you know, they have a full week. The Holy Week is Sunday um, to Sunday. So imagine like a week ago, we all ride into Jerusalem just like these disciples did. And they come into Jerusalem on a Sunday, um, one week ago, uh, and they, Jesus is coming and all these people are laying down palm branches and they're singing his praises. They think he's the God whom God sent, or he's the king whom God sent to rescue them um, from the Roman Empire. They have the Roman Empire, they're under occupation by the Roman Empire, and they think this is the guy who's going to kick the Romans out and we're going to get our land back. And so he's, they come in on a Sunday, people are singing his praises, but from day one, Israel's religious leaders begin plotting against Jesus. And by Wednesday, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' closest disciples, agrees to betray Jesus. This is their window of opportunity to get rid of Jesus. And then on Thursday, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his 12 closest disciples, which is celebrating how God rescued his people long ago from the nation of Egypt. And so you know, they're thinking, wow, we're eating this and celebrating this. Jesus is about to rescue us 
from a different nation who's oppressing us. And so they're sitting there. But that same night, they, he gets betrayed, he gets arrested, he gets put on trial, and then the religious leaders bring him before Pontius Pilate and, on Friday morning, and they say, this guy's stirring up trouble against Rome. He's telling people not to pay their taxes, and he's a rebel against Rome. So he should be crucified, just like all other rebels against Rome should be crucified. And so Pilate, he gives in to this pressure from the crowd. And so then late afternoon on Friday, you know, imagine just a couple days ago, if we came into Jerusalem with Jesus, Jesus is beaten, he's bloodied, he's naked, and he's hanging between two criminals, and then he breathed his last, and he was buried in a tomb. So this, imagine this is Sunday for us, we're the disciples, and it just happened on Friday. And Jesus' followers thought he was going to rescue them from the Roman Empire. Instead, he was executed by the Roman Empire. And our passage picks up the story on Sunday, just a few days after Jesus' death. And just seven days prior, Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly, and now he's dead in a tomb, his body lifeless and cold. And a group of women followed, went to the tomb on Sunday to go and anoint his body with spices. And seven days ago, they thought they'd be crowning him as king, and now they're anointing him as a corpse. Seven days ago, they thought they'd be holding a coronation service, but now they're holding a funeral service. And to their surprise, when they arrive, they find that the stone is rolled away, and then they look inside, and it's empty. And then these two, as they're still standing there perplexed, there's these two men in dazzling clothes, kind of like shining brightly. Um, and later on, we're told that they're angels. And the word angel means messenger, and they have a message for them. They say this in verse 5. Got to back up to my page. Verse 5, they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he's still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Their message is this. Jesus is risen. And remember how he told you that he was going to die and rise again? It kind of always seemed like they had selective hearing. They heard the dying part, and sometimes they'd be like, yeah, they kind of ignore that. But they always miss the rising again part. You'd think that would be the thing like, excuse me, uh, <laughs> what, what did you just say? You're going to rise again three days later? But they never asked questions about that. They just got upset that he said he was going to die. Um, but the angels are basically saying, they're reminding him, Jesus was telling the truth. He told you he was going to suffer and die and rise again. And here he is. And after hearing it, they say, yes, we do remember that. And then they run to tell Jesus' the other 11 disciples upon hearing that report, but those guys aren't buying it. They kind of think, this is nonsense. Like, sure, the tomb's empty. You get some angels telling you. It's like, I can't, really? Come on. But Peter, he just denied knowing Jesus Thursday night a couple days earlier. Um, he gets up. He runs to the tomb. He looks inside. He sees there's, there's no body. He sees the linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in for burial. And then he walks home marveling. He's not convinced yet, but he's like, man, something interesting has happened. He's wondering what it could be. And in this first conversation, a group of women are given a message about Jesus by two angels. And the message is this. Remember what Jesus said about dying and rising to life three days later? He was telling the truth. And so let's look at our second conversation. On the very same day, this is in verses 13 through 35, on the very same day, two other disciples are walking, and they're talking as they go, and they're walking to Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem just outside the city, and they're walking about seven miles away. And then Jesus, as they're going, he comes up and he starts walking with them. And they were kept from recognizing him, and he asked, well, what are you talking about? And they stopped and they you know, look at him with sad faces. They're like, are you the, the one named Cleopas asked, are you the only person visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening these days? In verse 19, 
and pick up their conversation. Uh, and he says this to them. He says, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They had hoped Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They thought he was the one who was going to come in and rescue them from the Roman Empire. This is the king that God always said he was going to send, who was going to give us our land back, going to boot the Romans out. But their hope died and was buried with Jesus in the tomb. But however, the group of women who visited the tomb in the morning had amazed them with this, telling them uh, the tomb's empty. Um, angels told us he's risen, and so they amazed them all. Um, but then others also went and found it empty. But no one yet has seen Jesus, and these two don't know they're looking at him. And these two disciples see Jesus' suffering and death as a defeat. And now they need to be woken up to the truth, which is why Jesus responds in verse 25 saying this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The group of women needed to be shown that Jesus was telling the truth about his death and resurrection. And now these two disciples need to be shown that their Bible, our Old Testament, which here it calls it Moses and the prophets, that their Bible was pointing to the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection. The disciples in all of Israel were expecting a, a Messiah who would come and be glorious, but they were not expecting a Messiah who would come uh, and suffer and die. They expected Jesus to march into Jerusalem, set up God's kingdom by kicking out the Romans. And so when he died, they thought it was a defeat. Well, how in the world is he going to conquer anybody now? How is he going to rescue anybody if he's dead? But Jesus shows them that the scriptures always pointed to suffering and then glory. It was, it was one after the other. As they drew near to Emmaus, the two disciples start heading towards their house, and Jesus is just going to keep walking. And they say, oh, no, you, you need to stay with us. It's close to evening. You know, that was a good hospitality practice. Like, you can't be walking around at night. You need to be, come and stay with us. And so he agrees, and as they sit around the table, um, they share a meal together. And Jesus takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And this is the, exactly what he did during the Lord's Supper just a few days prior with his disciples during the Passover. And at that moment, they recognize that they're sitting with Jesus. And then he vanishes from their sight. And then they, the disciples, they look at each other and they comment, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, while he's opening to us our, our Bible? He's doing it from memory because they, you know, Bibles on big scrolls back then. And so he's doing it from memory and showing like, here is how all these scriptures pointed forward to the suffering, to my death, and then to the resurrection afterwards and how that was all necessary. And so it's through opening of the scriptures and eating with Jesus that they see him for who he truly is. And this is what we do every week, every worship gathering we have. We gather to open the scriptures and see how all the scriptures point to Jesus. And then we take the Lord's Supper together and we remember how his body was broken for us and how his blood was poured out for us. And in doing this, we get to see who Jesus truly was. What was he about? What did he do? And we're remembering his death, remembering his resurrection. 
And even though it's night, they left Emmaus, Emmaus right away, returned to Jerusalem, and reported to the eleven disciples. And they tell him, the Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon as well. And so we're, we haven't been told about that appearance in Luke, but it happens, they kind of skip forward a little bit. In the first conversation, a group of women are told, remember what Jesus said about dying and be raised, being raised to life three days later? He was telling the truth. And in this second conversation, the two disciples are shown by Jesus himself that all of Scripture pointed to his death and resurrection, to suffering and then glory. And so let's turn to our third conversation in verses 36 through 53. While the two disciples from Emmaus and the eleven are still discussing this appearance with each other, Jesus himself stood among them and then he greets them. He says, peace to you. Understandably, they're startled and frightened, and at first they think a spirit has come to hang out with them. Like, oh, geez, you know, what? all of a sudden there's somebody in the room, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's like a ghost here. And in verse 38, Jesus starts talking, and he says this, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And so, even though they've heard twice that Jesus is alive, they're still doubting. And so he proves to them, I'm not a spirit. He invites them to touch him and see the nail marks in his hands and his feet. He wants them to see that it is really him. And then verse 41 says, they disbelieved for joy. And the, the reality is starting to sink in. Could this really be Jesus? Could this really be our teacher that we've been following for the last three years? Could this really be the one that we believe was the Messiah? Could this really be the same Jesus that we just buried three days ago and we watched him die? It seemed too good to be true. And they're beginning to feel the joy that Jesus might really be alive, but they're still trying to believe that this is really happening. Like, can this really be happening? So Jesus gives them another proof. He asks them, do you have anything to eat? And they give him something and then he eats it, a piece of fish. And you can't touch spirits. And you can't touch hallucinations. You know, some people say they're hallucinating. And you also can't feed hallucinations. And you can't feed spirits. And so he's like, I'm proving to you I am really here. And he repeats the same truth that we've been hearing. Look at verse 44. He says this to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, Jesus tells his disciples that his death and his resurrection were fulfilling what God had spoken through the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. And it's crazy to think that the Old Testament is written over in like 2,000 years of history by numerous authors. And Jesus is going back and saying all of this was God speaking and pointing to the same singular event that was going to happen centuries or thousands of years earlier. And God was preparing it the whole time. And in verse 45 it says this, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Once again, Jesus says, The pattern is suffering, then glory, death, then resurrection. And since they've been witness to all these things, Jesus' life, 
Jesus' predictions that he would die and his predictions that he'd be raised from the dead. And then the actual events of his death and resurrection, they're sent into the world as witnesses. They're supposed to tell other people what they've seen and what they've heard and what they've experienced. They're sent with the gospel, the good news of forgiveness in Jesus' name, leading to a restored relationship with God. Repentance means to change direction. And people are to change the direction of their lives, to follow Jesus as their king. Why? Because through him our sins can be forgiven, our relationship with God can be made new. And this news requires a change in direction because it changes everything. And it's a, the whole situation of life has changed if this news is true. But the disciples can't do this on their own. They need to be given heavenly clothing. It says they need to be clothed with power from on high. They need to wait in Jerusalem and Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to give them power so they can go out into the world um, with this mission. And after this, after he tells them this, Jesus blesses them and he departs to be with God the Father at his right hand, just like he told um, the religious leaders he would do at, during the council. That's actually why they condemn him. They say, you know, you, are you the, uh, asking, like, who are you? Who do you say you are? And he's like, well, soon I'll be seated. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And they're like, what? So are you the Son of God then? He's claiming a place of power and honor and authority nearly equal with God. And so like, what? That's what that was the charge they gave to condemn him. And then, well, it's, it's true. He does go to be with the Father. And the disciples respond by worshiping him. They're filled with great joy. And then they praise God in the temple every day. And they, they've gone on this journey from unbelief to belief, from sadness and doubt to joy and worship. The big question this passage answers is, why should we believe the gospel? Why should we believe the gospel? Gospel means good news, and Jesus gave it to lots of people. He gave good news to lots of people. To the woman with many sins who washed his feet with her hair, he said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. He gave her good news. To the criminal on, on a cross next to him, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He gives them good news. But why should we believe it? Why should they believe the gospel? Why should we believe it today? And imagine the gospel is a house. And there are other spiritual messages, other spiritual houses on the market. And, you know, there's Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or spiritualism. And there's many more things. And if you go out house hunting, you can tour all the houses, all the religions. But how do you decide which one to buy? Each one has a different style. Sometimes they even have overlapping features. And maybe you even think each of them are beautiful in their unique way. And some people even decide, you know, none of these really fit me. I'm just going to build my own house. I'm going to kind of pick and choose features from all of these, the things I like, and I'm going to build my own house through my own efforts, and it's going to kind of be my own unique one. And no matter what each house has to offer, or how beautiful you may think it is, you need to check the foundation. If the foundation is solid, then the house is solid. Jesus says he gave his life for us so we can have a deep, meaningful, personal relationship with God. And we may tour that house and think it's beautiful, but we need to check the foundation. And the big question this passage answers is, why should we believe the gospel? And the answer is, because Jesus is alive, the good news is true news. Because Jesus is alive, the good news is true news. And I've heard lots of people say, even like a couple people um, in the past months that they say this about God or Christianity, the gospel, like, I really wish it were true. I'd love for someone to give me evidence to show me that it's true. But until then, I'm not going to believe. Instead of seeing Jesus as the Lord of life, um, they see, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he said he could be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And 
uh, nowadays, legend can be added to that too. So instead of seeing him as the Lord of life, people see him as a liar, a lunatic, or a legend. And so many people think Jesus was a liar. He lied about being the Messiah, about being the Son of God, about his death providing forgiveness of sins. And his good news was a lie. But the resurrection proves that he was telling the truth. It, it, it's easy to say, I could tell all of you, you know what, I'm going to die in a couple years and my death is going to rescue all of you from your sin. And so, get excited. Get excited about that. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, but so that's an easy thing to predict and say. But he also predicted his resurrection. And because he was raised from the dead, you know that what he said about his death is now true because he was raised to life. Because Jesus is alive, the good news is true news. Or many think that Jesus was a lunatic. He's crazy and he said crazy things like, God sent me, I'm destined I'm to die and save you, and that he would be raised from the dead. That's just crazy talk. You know, can you imagine me telling you, like, you know, God, we'd look at cults on, you know, yeah. TV and documentaries, like people saying, like, I'm sent by God, I'm the only one that has a connection with God, and like, I'm telling you what the truth is. And Jesus claimed to be sent by God. But the resurrection proves that he wasn't crazy because Jesus is alive. The good news is true news. And lastly, this one I think is the most popular today. Many think Jesus is just a legend. Some think he never existed, just, just all made up. And some think that what we read in the Bible about Jesus is based on a remarkable person, but after years and years of telling the story about him to other people, it became more and more remarkable to the point that suddenly he was divine and he promised salvation and then he was raised from the dead. And it's like an ancient game of telephone. You know, you pass it down the line, the message, and it just kept getting passed on and passed on and the message kept getting bigger and bigger and more distorted. And eventually, by the end, you don't even know what the original is. And so a lot of people think that's what we have in the Bible. But if you want to test whether a wine glass is authentic crystal or whether it's just glass, you give it a flick with your finger on the rim, and glass just kind of make a little clink sound, but a crystal wine glass is going to kind of have this pleasant ringing tone that, that goes out from it. And when you test these stories in the Bible for authenticity, they ring with a genuine tone instead of a made-up tone. Because first, in that culture, the testimony of women was considered unreliable. But all four narratives of Jesus' life in the Bible tell us that women were the very first ones to see the empty tomb and the very first ones to report it. In some cases, the first ones to see him. And if you wanted to make up a credible story that other people would believe, you would want men to be the very first ones to see the tomb as the, you know, because those are credible witnesses. Like, you know, you can even see the disciples, they think it's an idle tale when the women come and say, saw the empty tomb, angels appear just like, how oh, we think it's an idle tale. And it was, in that day, it was like, if you wanted credible witnesses, and wanted to make it up, you should have men find the tomb. And second, the disciples, who are the ones that are kind of like the founders of the religion, spreading this message about Jesus, they're portrayed in a pretty embarrassing way. They're portrayed as disbelieving and disobedient. They're not really great followers of Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus would be raised. And then they're slow to believe that he is raised when they see him. And then he clearly told them, you need to take this message to all peoples, to all nations, but they sit around in Jerusalem thinking the message is only for Jews. Luke, the author of this book, writes a follow-up volume, Acts. And it's not till like chapter 11 that Peter is finally like, oh, everybody can believe in God. And it's like, what? He just said that, <laughs> you know, like a couple days ago. And it's like the disciples, if you wanted the people to read it and be like, wow, these guys really know what they're doing and what they're talking about. You don't read it and get this sense that these founders of a fake religion were like, really 
solid people. They're like always bumbling and always trying to figure things out. And often, at the same time, we can act kind of snobbish toward people who lived in ancient times, thinking they're, you know, they're gullible and they kind of believe anything. Everyone just believed, you know, crazy stuff would happen. They would just, anything you told them, they believed. But we saw today that they're very slow to believe that someone was raised from the dead. When they hear about the empty tomb, they don't say, oh, must have been a resurrection. They don't jump to resurrection. They're like, yeah, that sounds like an idle tale. And it's like, because there's lots of different options. Oh, the body could have been moved. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Lots of options. And when they hear that others have seen Jesus, they don't jump to resurrection. They're like, oh, you know, he must have been resurrected. They're just, they're still disbelieving. And when they see Jesus, they don't even jump to resurrection. They're not like, Jesus, you're resurrected. They're like, we must be seeing a spirit. It's like the last thing that they expected to happen. It isn't until Jesus proves that he's alive with a real body that they're finally convinced. And, and some will say that the disciples, oh, they saw his vision or hallucination, and they just mistook it for Jesus. Like, oh, they're all hallucinating, they're all sad, I don't know, whatever they're, they're doing. Somehow they hallucinated in their grief, and they thought they were seeing Jesus, but they really weren't. But the visions and hallucinations can't be touched, and they can't eat. And Jesus does both of them. And some people say that the church just made it all up later, but there wouldn't be a church without the resurrection. They would all just gone home. Well, the leader died. Uh, he's the one we we're following. Now let's all go home. Movement's over. And some people say Jesus faked his death. But how does a man who was unable to carry his own cross, who was whipped and bloodied and pierced with nails in his hands and feet, and then with a spear in his side, escape from a tomb with a rock rolled over it and soldiers guarding it, then recover enough strength in two days to convince a group of skeptical men and women that he's resurrected as the victorious Lord of life. I mean, I don't know, how fast do you recover from injuries or much less crucifixion when there's not like modern surgery and doctors and, and all that stuff? Like how in the world could he fake his death and then fake his resurrection? A resurrection is the best explanation for the empty tomb. The, the best explanation for three things. The empty tomb, the changed lives of these disciples, and the many appearances. And Jesus' resurrection is the foundation that the message of Christianity rests upon. It proves Jesus really was who he said he was, and his death could do what he said it would do. And so, what's the good news? What did he say his death would do? Well, there's two things he told them at the Last Supper. First, because Jesus is alive, your sins can be truly forgiven. Because Jesus is alive, your sins can truly be forgiven. And Jesus says that the good news is that if we surrender our lives to him, if we turn the keys of our life over to him, then we can be forgiven of all the wrongs we've ever done, all our selfishness, all our rebellion against God. We can exchange our sinful record for his spotless record, our record that broke all God's laws for his record that didn't break any. And that's good news. That's the gospel. Through his death, Jesus suffered the penalty of our sin so we could be rescued from it. But then secondly, because Jesus is alive, you can truly know God. Because Jesus is alive, you can truly know God. Without Jesus, you're separated from God like a big curtain in front of you. The curtain was torn when Jesus was, um, when he died. And that big curtain is representative of you cannot get access to God. All of your sin, all your refusal to follow his ways, all the times you've said, no to what he's asked you to do. That keeps you separated from him. Because when you do those things to people, that creates a damage in the relationship. And when you do it over and over and over again and never say sorry or never do anything to make it right, that just keeps making more and more separation. And it pictures it, there's this big curtain, you can never go in there, you're never going to get in. 
But because Jesus took the penalty for our sin, we can now truly know God in a personal relationship. Jesus made it possible because he broke down the barrier of sin that existed between us and God. So truth we need to take home that is very hard for us to grasp. But know this. Know that Jesus is alive today. Even though 2,000 years ago this book was written 2,000 years ago and some parts of it even older than that, but he's still alive today. He isn't just this good guy who lived a long time ago and did some good things and said some good stuff. He is alive today. Everything he said about who he is and what he did on our behalf is true. The good news is that Jesus rescues us from sin. And it's, that's the good news and it's also true news. And this week, well, Nick, Larry, and I were meeting in our Gospel Fluency group. We were discussing this passage and, and Nick pointed out that it's really easy to live like Jesus is still in the tomb. It's easy to live as if Jesus is someone from the past who did some good things and taught some good stuff but isn't around anymore today. He's just like you know everyone else that was famous in history. Like You don't have access to him. He's dead. He's rotting in a tomb. Well, he's rotten. He's done. He's just dust now, just like the rest of us. When the disciples are believing that Jesus is in the tomb, when he's, that he's still dead, they're filled with sadness and doubt. Jesus was killed, and they're expecting probably the same fate's going to happen to them. Like they killed the leader, maybe they'll kill the followers too. And some go back to their normal lives. They just go back to the same old routine, like nothing happened. Well, it's over. Might as well you know, go back to fishing, whatever we're doing. But once they realize that the tomb is empty, there's a huge change. They're filled with joy. They, they bow down before Jesus as the resurrected king, and they're exploding with thanksgiving to God. They don't fear death anymore. They become bold witnesses to others about Jesus. Their lives are changed because they know that the good news is true news. They know that the foundation is solid, and so now we can risk our lives. We can be thankful. We know that everything he said um, was true, and then it's happened. So which one of these two states describe your life? Thinking Jesus is in the tomb or knowing he's resurrected? And has Jesus changed it? If you aren't experiencing joy from the gospel, you probably believe Jesus is still in the tomb. If you aren't praising God and worshiping him, you probably believe Jesus is still in the tomb. And if the way you live your life hasn't changed, you probably believe Jesus is still in the tomb. If you buy the house of the gospel, and are confident in its foundation because Jesus is alive. Well, what's it like to live there? What is it, you know, if you moved into that house, what would it be like? And, you know, since Jesus is the one giving it to you, like, what are his house rules? What's it like to be in a house that Jesus has built? And so here's just three ways going through three of our community practices we do as a church. We talk about living as family, loving as servants, and going as messengers. And if you believe Jesus is truly alive, it would be easy to live as family with others who believe this news. Living in close relationships with others can be trying and taxing. You'll have to ask people for forgiveness when they hurt you, and you'll have to um, forgive others uh, when... I said that the wrong way. You're going to have to give forgiveness when others hurt you, and you're going to have to ask for forgiveness when you hurt others. And there's going to be personalities that get under your skin and habits that annoy you. You'll be disappointed and frustrated and hurt. And other people are going to give you many reasons to put up a giant curtain and separate yourself from them and just block them out. But if Jesus has ripped through the curtain that separated us from God, then we can live as family with others and tear down the curtains that we so easily put up that separate us from other people. Amen. And if you believe Jesus is truly alive, it would be easy to love others as servants because serving others requires sacrificing our time, our money, our comfort, our preferences. It means 
putting others' interests before our own. It means looking out for the needs of others instead of expecting and demanding them to meet our needs and getting upset when they don't. But if Jesus gave his life for you, then you can give up your time, your money, comfort, and preferences to love others because you see this amazing love that God has shown for you. And lastly, if you believe Jesus is truly alive, it'd be easy to go as a messenger of this good news. You'd be filled with great joy and thankfulness that you know your sins are forgiven and you have a real relationship with God that you did not have before. You'd be a witness to the good news that Jesus died for you and that he was raised to life, proving he can really change your life and your relationship with God. Because you've seen it for yourself, you want others to experience it too. You know that your good news is true news and that it is life-changing for you, and so you want to share that with others. If we know for sure something's true, you know, if you buy something and you're like, I know this is an awesome car, and so I heartily recommend it to other people, and it's like, I know Jesus has done this for me, and so I heartily recommend him to others. You know, not like he's a product, but inviting people to know a person. When you go into the house of the gospel for a tour, you discover it's beautiful. You see that it's good news about the gracious, loving, merciful God of the universe, ripping through the curtain of our sin and guilt and shame and condemnation that separated us from him. You see him healing and restoring what is broken about us and our world to make all of it new. You hear the invitation that he did this as a free gift, and we can receive this house, you know, the house of the gospel. You don't have to, like, get enough good works or get enough, you know, in the past or clean up your life enough so, okay, now I have enough good things that I can buy all this stuff that Jesus offers. No, he says, actually, it's on the market and it's free, and you can just come and live in it. All you have to do um, is trust me and receive me as your king. And the house is beautiful, and when you check the foundation, you discover that it's rock solid, so you can bet your life on it and live with confidence in Jesus as the Lord of life because he was raised, and so the good news is true news. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you meet us in our struggles, our doubt, our unbelief, and you show us this eyewitness testimony of these men and women who saw Jesus alive and who wrote down what they saw and what they heard in a way that rings with authenticity and so we can trust it. And thank you that you've been preparing that message and um, what Jesus was going to do for thousands of years. And so that's even more testimony to how true it is. Would you help us to leave here today, um, wherever each of us is at on that journey uh, from unbelief to belief, would you let us leave here with a little more confidence or a lot more confidence um, in the fact that forgiveness of sins is real because Jesus is alive and that proves that his good news is true news. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.